You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Bible Church of Paragool. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagool.com. So if you have your Bibles, grab them and turn with me to the book of Micah, chapter 6. Micah is in the Old Testament, Minor Prophets section. It can be kind of difficult to find if you need to use your table of contents. No shame in that. Uh, Micah, chapter 6. We're going to start reading in verse 6, and I'll read through verse 8, and then I'll pray for us. Um, This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Micah says, chapter 6, verse 6. Uh, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness, that's also the word for mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. So Father, I I pray that you would help us to be present here with you in this moment. Um, We acknowledge that you are here. Help us to be here with you. Would you awaken uh, the truth in us that we sang about this morning, that you have compassion for both the Pharisee and the criminal? And would you put that compassion in our hearts? Would you open up our hearts and our eyes and our ears so that we can hear what you're saying to us this morning? And would you let your kingdom come and transform us from the inside out? And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, no matter who you voted for, we can all agree that the 2016 presidential election was one of, and uh, many historians are saying that it is, the most volatile, the most polarizing, and emotionally charged and traumatizing presidential election in the history of our country. And uh, one of the primary contributing factors to that, of course, is the world of social media. So I read various cultural commentators this week who talked about how things like Facebook and Twitter are actually fueling the confusion and the fear and the anger and the emotional instability that people are feeling right now. And the reason for that, if you think about it, is because those things, Facebook, Twitter, all of that, gives us this nonstop permission to express whatever it is that we're thinking, whatever it is that we're feeling, without actually having to slow down and process it first. So that's the key. So if you think about it, Used to, if you wanted to complain about your government, or if you wanted to complain with, you know, against someone with whom you disagree, you had to actually stop and sit down and carve out space in your day to write a letter and actually think about what it is that you're feeling and process it and think about what it is that you're saying. And now, of course, you have at your fingertips this unlimited permission to just fire off whatever it is that we're thinking, whatever it is that we're feeling. And then once you hit post, once you hit send, it subconsciously solidifies that thought or that emotion for you. And now you wear it and you carry it. And that's true even if it's irrational. And that's why you see people on Facebook right now using apocalyptic language and talking about how 
it's the end of the world. Um, now, some are using humor to process this. I don't know if you saw uh, this meme, my favorite meme that went around, uh, that went viral on Tuesday night that said, I'm going to put it on the screen for you. It said, uh, I can't wait to watch the season finale of America, right? Because everything's falling apart. Or actually, I, I, I like this one better. As a Razorbacks fan, even though they lost last night, uh, my favorite one was the one that said, uh, some hate him, some hate her, but everyone hates LSU. So it's time to come together, America. America's divided. Uh, America's falling apart. What's going to bring us back together? Well, that would be our mutual hatred for Louisiana State University. And I apologize to Tim Parrott, who graduated from there, but um, it's true, Tim. Everybody hates LSU. Um, and the truth is, there's a little bit of truth behind every joke. And so what commentators are saying is that what's being highlighted in these kinds of posts is that there is a deep, growing relational strife and discord and disunity in our nation and even in our city. And most tragic of all, even in the church. So I've seen people who call themselves Christians on social media this week slamming people who disagree with them. Um, and these aren't, you know, intelligent, respectful, charitable conversations. I'm talking about slander and character assassination, racial discrimination, uh, Christians saying, I wish everybody who disagrees with me, everybody who has a different religious or political view than me would just move to Canada like they said they would. And by the way, they might. They might get so tired of this brand of the so-called church that they might actually leave. I don't know if you saw the... Canadian immigration website crashed due to so much online traffic. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to excuse myself from the blade of my own critique. Um, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I've been caught up in this too. Just because I haven't put it out there on Facebook doesn't mean that I haven't thought it or that I haven't said it. And the truth is I've sinned against people on all sides of this issue. So here's what I want us to do this morning. I want to humbly and urgently call us as part of the church in Paragould to repent and to reorient our minds and our hearts and our lives around the kingdom of Jesus. But here's the deal. In order for us to do that, we're going to have to actually slow down for just a second. We're going to actually pull, we're gonna have to pull our fingers back away from the keyboard and pull our thumbs away from our phones and slow down for just a second, just long enough to address what's going on beneath the surface and what it is that's really driving us and that has us so emotionally involved right now. And I think Richard Plass, uh, Richard Lovelace, that is, helps us. Uh, in 1978, Richard Lovelace wrote this book called Renewal as a Way of Life. And here's what Lovelace says in his book. He says, one of the ruling passions of humanity is the search for a just and righteous government. Every four years, the American people elect a new president with the hope that somehow this will make things better. This will make things right. This will bring restoration, peace, wholeness. In a word, justice. In the hearts of the people is a groping, inarticulate conviction that if the right ruler would only come along, the world would be healed of all its wounds. Creation is headless and desperately searching for its head.
Loveless is saying that we know that we live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. Things are broken, things are cracked, things are marred, and we feel it. And so what unites every single human being on this planet, whether you would call yourself a religious person or a secular person, a Christian or not a Christian, a Democrat or a Republican, what unites us all is this deep pervasive longing for a ruler who will make things right. In a word, we long for justice and not our own definitions of it. We long for the kind of justice God promises in his word the full flourishing of humanity, the full flourishing of all of creation. So I have some good news and I have some bad news in light of that. The good news is the ruler that we all long for has come and his name is Jesus. He's the king of the universe. He's the king of all kings. He's the Lord of all lords. And Jesus says in Matthew 4 that when he broke into this world, the kingdom of God broke into this world with him. The kingdom of God is here right now in our midst in Paragould, Arkansas. And as sure as we sit here this morning breathing, Jesus is sitting on his glorious throne and he is right now in the process of making all things new. That's the good news. Here's the troubling news. If that's true, if the kingdom of God is here, why are things still broken? Why is there still so much injustice in our world, in our relationships with one another? Why are we not experiencing more of his kingdom in our culture? And according to Micah chapter 6, the reason we struggle to experience the presence and the power of God's kingdom in our culture is not because it isn't here. It's because the church in the West, by and large, has neglected her responsibility to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which is the same Greek word for justice, by the way. We have neglected our responsibility to seek first the kingdom of God and his justice. Listen, Jesus says ultimately in the kingdom of God, it's not presidents and politicians who will be held responsible for doing justice and seeking the flourishing of all things. It's the church who will be held responsible for that. One scholar said, God has a plan to bring justice to the world and his plan is us. We will be held responsible for that. And so here's the core conviction I want to put forth this morning and just have us wrestle with. The kingdom of God becomes a realized reality not when we elect the right ruler, but when its citizens love and live like the real king. In other words, when we pledge our allegiance to Jesus and we live for his agenda and we pursue his definition of justice, that's what will make America truly great. That's what will make our country flourish. That's what will make our city flourish. And we desperately need it. So here's what I want to do in the rest of our time this morning. I just want to unpack three things. I want to talk about the biblical mandate to do justice. I want to talk about the biblical meaning of doing justice. And I want to talk about the biblical motivation for doing justice. So uh, the mandate, the meaning, and the motivation. First, the mandate or the command to do justice. So look with me at Micah chapter 6, verse 6, and the prophet Micah asks the most relevant question you can ever ask. Look with me, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. He says, With what shall I come before the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord? In other words, 
when you come before God on judgment day, and all of us will, what kind of life will you present to him? What is the fruit that God is looking for in our lives to see whether you and I are authentic citizens of his kingdom or to see if we are false citizens, uh, counterfeit Christians, unbelievers? Now, I mean, just to make sure that we're all clear, we know that the Bible teaches that ultimately God's looking at your faith, all right? We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus. But God does say, in places like Romans 2.6 and 2 Corinthians 5.10, that we will be judged based on our works as evidence of our faith. James says in James chapter 2 that faith without works is dead. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works, James says. So the question Mike is asking is, what works or what fruit truly evidences saving faith in Jesus? What kind of fruit is produced out of a heart that loves Jesus and trusts in Jesus? Look back down at the text. Look at Micah 6. He says, uh, verse 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Okay, that's a little weird. Let me translate that into our culture and our context for a second. What Micah is asking is, shall I come before God with a pretty decent record of doing some baseline religious stuff? Uh, in, in, in their culture and in their context, if you're, if you're a Jew in the Old Testament world, you're going to regularly go to the temple. You're going to hear God's word being read to you. You're going to give your tithes and offerings. You're going to interact with the priests. And then you're going to offer some sacrifices. It's just basic religious stuff that you did. Regardless of whether or not you trusted in God or not, this is just stuff that you did. So Micah's asking, is that what God's looking for as evidence and as fruit of our faith on Judgment Day? Is he looking for a record of doing baseline religious practices? I prayed a prayer and I asked Jesus into my heart, and then I tried my best to clean up my life. I was in church most Sundays. I prayed and read my Bible sometimes. Okay, my Bible had a lot of dust on it, but I kind of read it sometimes. And I did my best not to screw my life up and make two terrible decisions and do anything too terribly bad. So I think God will accept me into his kingdom and I'll go to heaven when I die. Is that really the evidence or the fruit that God is looking for in your life as to why he should let you into his kingdom. Well, let's keep reading. Look at verse 7. Micah is going to kick it up a notch. You ready? He says, okay, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? So, in other words, maybe what God is looking for is not just baseline religious stuff and morality. Maybe he's looking for a super Christian. So maybe he's looking for someone who's filled with thousands. Their life is filled with thousands and thousands of religious performances. So, I mean, if you read the book of Micah in his context, what he's talking about is these are people who are passionate about God. You would look at their life and you would say, man, that person is passionate about God. They never miss a temple service. They, read their, they have the whole Old Testament law memorized. Okay? Uh, they give generously. They pray all the time. Every station in their car is tuned to Caleb. I mean, these people are fanatics for God. And here's the thing. All that is good stuff. All that is part of working out your faith. But what God says through the prophet Micah is if that's all you've got, something, there's a gaping hole in your faith. Something is missing. 
There's a deeper fruit that God is looking for. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 7. Back down at verse 7. The middle of the verse. Now, Micah's going to take it to the realm of absurdity. Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? I mean, is that what you want, God? Should I give it my child? God says, no, I gave it mine. Should I give up my child, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? This is absurd. Nowhere does God ever require a sacrifice like that. Micah's being sarcastic. What Micah is saying is, just tell me how much I need to do to prove to you that I'm worthy of your kingdom. And what do you want me to do? I'll go above and beyond, God. What do you want to see on my resume to prove that I deserve your kingdom? God answers that question. You want to know what God's looking for? as the ultimate fruit of whether or not you're trusting Jesus and you have a love relationship with Him? Look at verse 8. With what shall I come before the Lord? He's told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? It's not a good idea, this is a requirement, but to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah is not only giving us the summary of what it means to be a Christian, He's giving us the summary of what it means to be fully human. You and I were created to walk humbly with our Creator. And out of that relationship, we were created to do justice and mercy with one another. Jesus summarizes it like this. We were created to love God and love one another. You know what that means? God says through the prophet Micah uh, that He's not looking at your record of religious practices. He's not looking at your church attendance. He's not looking at who you voted for in the election to see whether or not you're a Christian. He is looking at your life and seeing whether or not you do justice and mercy with people. Does that, that stings me, man. That, 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 pegs, that pins me against the wall. He's looking at your life to see whether or not you're walking in humility before God and loving other people, especially those who disagree with you for the sake of the gospel. That's what he's looking for. I mean, let's keep going. This is all over the scriptures. You don't have to turn there, but I'm going to put it on the screen for you. I'm just going to summarize Isaiah chapter 1. Here's what he says. I find no pleasure in your sacrifices, God says. Stop bringing me your meaningless offerings. I'm weary of them. My soul hates them. They have become a burden to me. When you spread out your hands for prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. You see this. You see there's too many verses for me to put on the screen for you. You see this all over the Bible. The ultimate fruit of saving faith and a love relationship with God is the way you do justice and mercy. Not who you vote for. Not, it's the way you do justice and mercy. It's the ultimate sign of whether or not Jesus is your king. And the most important place you see that in all of Scripture is from the lips of the king himself. Turn to Matthew 25. Here's what, he said, here's what Jesus says in Matthew 25. You see this picture of judgment day. And Jesus is on his glorious throne. He's got every, all the saved on his right. He's got all the lost on his left. Look at what he says to the lost in verse 41 of Matthew 25. Jesus says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For, here's why, you stand condemned. I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, fascinating word, and you did not welcome me. 
naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me, then they will also answer to him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then Jesus will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment. But the righteous, same Greek word for the just, those who do justice, will enter into eternal life. So Jesus says, hey, look, in my kingdom, it's not presidents and politicians who will be ultimately held responsible for doing justice and seeking the flourishing of humanity, caring for the marginalized and the weak. The church will be held responsible for that. I think the reason I struggle with this, and we're, going to, we're, we're going there, we're going to get there in just a second. The reason I struggle with this is because as we're going to see, this is messy. Doing justice is messy. It's involved. It's uncomfortable. It stretches you. It pushes you out of your comfort zone. It's, it's painful. And so I would rather a government do it for me. That way, when it's not being done, I can blame them for it. This country's a mess. We need a new president. Listen, man, if you're a Christian, your king is the same as it has always been. Jesus has been on his throne since before we were here. And our marching orders are the same. You don't know what they are? Regardless of who's president, do justice and love mercy. Especially your enemies. Especially those with whom you disagree for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom. Do justice and love mercy. And perhaps some of you in this room, the reason why you struggle with all of this is because it's not presidents you're blaming, it's God you're blaming for all the injustice in the world. That's me too. A lot of times, God, where are you? Why is all this happening? Why is this falling apart? What are you going to do about this? I read an I read a anonymous conversation this week with a guy who, someone put it on the screen for you, a guy who said, sometimes I would like to ask God why he allows poverty, suffering, and injustice when he could do something about it. And then the other fellow says, well, why don't you ask him? And he says, because I'm afraid he would ask me the same question. Matthew 25 says he will ask you that question. And he will ask me that question. God has a plan to bring justice to the world, and we are that plan. So I think the question we need to ask, man, is what does this mean? Because we've seen that it's mandated. There's no arguing that it's mandated. God cares about justice. He loves it more than we do. So we better ask, what does it mean? What's the biblical meaning of doing justice? Well, let's talk about that. Jesus gives us some clues. I mean, Jesus describes in that Matthew 25 passage uh, what it means to do justice. If you look at the categories of the people that he uses, if you've got your Bible open, look back down at Matthew 25. Jesus talks about feeding the hungry. He talks about welcoming the stranger. He talks about clothing the naked, taking care of the sick, visiting those in prison. Do you notice anything in common between those groups of people? Jesus is describing the weak and the marginalized and the most vulnerable of all people in any given society. And the Bible uses four broad categories to describe uh, society's most weak and most vulnerable. Jesus is picking up on all of these. These are all over the scriptures. Uh, Those four categories are the widow, the fatherless, the stranger or sojourner, and the poor. And anytime you see justice in the Bible, it's always linked to serving those groups of people. So let's start to try to define then the biblical meaning of justice. When God says, do justice, here's what he means. He means you steward your power to serve the weak. 
He means that you and I leverage our power and our resources to help the helpless. Or if you want me to give you a fuller definition, I'll put it on the screen for you. The meaning of biblical justice is this. To steward and leverage your God-given power to serve the most vulnerable members of society, that the gospel may go forward in word and deed, the kingdom of God may come to bear, and all may have the opportunity to flourish as human beings created in the image of God. I think you should put that on your fridge, man, where you can see it every day. This is what God is calling us to. This is the meaning of biblical justice. Major Campbell Roberts of the Salvation Army, he says it like this. uh, The justice of God requires that special concern be shown to the poor, the widows, the orphans, and for the immigrants, referred to in Scripture as the strangers. In fact, the litmus test of Scripture on whether justice is being done is the plight of the poor and the needy in society. Get this. The true measure of justice is how the most vulnerable members of the community make out. I think this leads us to ask a pretty serious question. Who are the most vulnerable members of our city? And how are they doing? Um, We have a growing population of children in need of foster care and adoption in our city. I did some reading about that this week, and I'm so thankful. We have families in our church who are pursuing that. Um, I just had a conversation with Dustin Rumsey at Swirls about how he and Amy are in the long process of adopting their two kiddos. Or in my missional community, Robert and Tammy Smith just went from a family of three to a family of six overnight. And they're serving with the kids today. They should never have to serve in the kids ever again. Because their life is a freaking circus. I mean, they, they, they have four kids under the age of whatever. And so they adopted their son Jonah less than a year and a half ago. And then a few weeks ago, they adopted Corey, Justice, and Sawyer, three brothers. And so now as a missional community, we are trying to leverage our resources and our power to serve them and to help them. Because this is, this is all of ours. This is all of our responsibility. It takes a village to raise these kids. I mean, that's at least true of my kids. Um, and maybe that's what God's calling you to. Maybe, maybe right now, maybe God has put a dream, a vision, a, a passion in your heart for foster care and adoption, and maybe he's calling you to step out in faith and encourage and do that. We also have a growing population of the poor in our city. Uh, according to the city data, 25.5% of the citizens of Paragold are living below the poverty line. So that means that over a quarter of our citizens are cut off from the resources that the majority of us take for granted. Uh, Things like opportunities for higher education, good medical care, gas money, positive support systems, shelter, food, clothing. Jesus says it's the church's responsibility to step into that. So I saw a quote from Stephen Colbert. I'm not a fan of Stephen Colbert. I've never watched his show. I don't care about him. But but the quote you need to see. Stephen Colbert said, uh, if this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor... Either we have to pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are, or we've got to acknowledge that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition and then admit that we just don't want to do it. Listen, man, this is our responsibility. God is calling us to do this. God is moving us into this. Where is God leading you to be more generous? 
And here's the thing. You don't need to join an organization or give monthly to some program to do that. The best context for living out justice and mercy in the life of our church is in the context of a missional community. This is how we do this as a church. This is our system and our structure for advancing the mission of the gospel and doing justice and mercy. So we have two missional communities that meet weekly out at Labor Park, and they build relationships with many of these families who live below the poverty line. This is a picture of their Halloween party they had. They meet out here every week, and they feed these families. And the goal is not just to feed these families, but the goal is to build relationships with them, to have their numbers in their phones, to know them, to know their stories, to be involved in their lives, to bring them into their homes, to give them every opportunity to flourish. We have MCs that are pursuing that, if you're interested in that. They'll be back there at the welcome table. In fact, all of them will. You can stop and talk with them. Um, They're trying to bring them from strangers to family. It's what my MC is trying to do. So uh, currently I'm involved in Jared and Megan's MC, which is called Glocal, Local Families Reaching Global Families. Um, and in the, in the past few years, we've seen a dramatic increase of the immigrant population in Perigold. I'm sure you've noticed that. Um, and so uh, that's who Jesus is talking about, by the way, when he says, I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. That word stranger doesn't mean like I've lived next to my neighbor for three years. I don't know who he is. The word stranger in the Bible is the word for foreigner, immigrant. It's a person who leaves their country, they're of another ethnicity, and they come to your country with virtually nothing, and they're not at home. And our responsibility is to make them at home, to make them feel at home, and to give them every opportunity to flourish, just like we have. It's called justice. It's called mercy. So I just learned this week that the largest population of Marshallese outside the Marshall Islands lives in northwest Arkansas. And several of them have migrated to Paragold. And the reason they're here is because in the 1960s, we detonated an atomic bomb, the United States did, that destroyed and made uninhabitable much of the Marshall Islands. So as retribution, we said that they can come to our country as often as they want on free passport, and we will try our best to give them jobs. The point is they didn't ask to be here, and they are here. It's our responsibility to make them feel at home. And so, man, we, uh, as, as a missional community, every other Wednesday night, we meet at Woodrow Wilson with these families, and we are in the process of beginning to teach them English. Uh, we, uh, we feed them. We uh, help them fill out forms so their kids can have vaccinations. We help them with job resumes. We're just trying to give them every opportunity to flourish. Also in that group, we have a growing uh, population of African refugees, People from Somalia and Ethiopia who've been displaced here because of political and civil unrest and violence in their own countries, they didn't ask to be here, but they're here. So I had a conversation with a social worker this week who said, man, she wept on the phone with me, wept, and said, I'm so tired of hearing this thing that these people are here in our country taking our jobs and mooching off our government to try to get their slice of the American dream. And she said, I've been in their homes. The only dream they're living is they're surviving. She said, one of my students, a little boy, came up to me and said that his dad was a doctor in Somalia, and his mom was a stay-at-home mom, and they were wealthy, and they did well. And then the government started coming in to their neighborhood and murdering people. So their father said, that's it. His father said, we're leaving. And they went to a refugee camp. And one morning they woke up and said, you're being exiled to Memphis, Tennessee. And they had no choice but to go there. And then through a series of circumstances, they end up here in Paragould, Arkansas. Jesus says, when I was a stranger, you welcomed me in. And he says, when you do it to one of the least of these, it's the same as if you were doing it to him. Because that's who he identifies with. 
We have uh, missional communities that are involved with um, serving some of the most vulnerable in our community, the elderly, the widows at uh, Bell Mead Nursing Home. People that honestly, like, I don't ever even think about in our community. And every Friday night, they go there and they love them and they serve them and they literally pray, pray with them as they are dying. We have missional communities that are involved with uh, exactly the, the, those whom Jesus loves and pursues and goes after, uh, people whose lives have been wrecked by crime and addiction and things like that, exactly the, those you see Jesus eating with and drinking with all the time. So uh, our missional community, Reconnect, is involved in this, and so I'm going to read you a summary of what they do if you're interested in being involved in that. The Reconnect family is a family of missionary servants who have been affected directly or indirectly by substance abuse. We get it. Our mission is to specifically help addicts who find Christ in a recovery program make reentry into society, giving them an opportunity to flourish. We create a safe place for them to learn new life. The transition phase is the most critical moment for the addict, life or death, sink or swim, and we work to empower a once broken soul. We instill a sense of purpose into their hearts, which is in many cases the first time anyone has ever told them they had a purpose. There's no way around the fact that this is mandated for us. With what shall I come before the Lord? With a life lived walking in humility with God, doing justice and loving mercy. And we have context for that within the life of our church. If you're not in a missional community, jump into one. Give your life to this. This is what we're here for. We're here to see the kingdom of God flourish. This is why I moved back. I did not move back here to play a religious game and collect a paycheck. I moved back here to see the kingdom of God flourish in my hometown. It's why I'm here. It's why we're here. It's why Jared planted this church. Now, all of this can feel incredibly overwhelming. At least if you're me, I look at this and say, I want to check out. I'm done. This is too overwhelming. This is too difficult, and I'll never get it right. Where do we find the motivation to do this? We've talked about the mandate. We've talked about the meaning. Let me close here quickly. Where do we find the power and the ability and the motivation to actually do this? Because we can't do this on our own strength. If we try to live justly and mercifully on our own strength, not only is it ineffective, it leads to more injustice. Because it's all about me in that moment. And it's a cosmic rejection of Jesus and our need for him. See, I can't make myself, I can act more just, I can't be more just. I can act more merciful, but I can't be more merciful. These are inner dispositions of the heart. How do we make ourselves just and merciful? And the answer is found only in the gospel of the kingdom of Jesus. Don't you realize what Jesus has done for us? Jesus has moved towards us when we were broken, helpless, needy, and weak. Because, see, the Bible says that apart from Jesus, we're the ones who are weak and impoverished. Spiritually impoverished. You know what that means? That means that in Matthew 25, when I'm standing before the king on judgment day, I've got nothing in the bank of my own morality with which I can pay him off and bribe him to get myself off the hook. I'm toast because I'm an unjust sinner. So I've got nothing in the bank, impoverished. What does Jesus do? He loves the poor. He moved in my direction. He left his cosmic home and became a sojourner. He exiled himself. He became a foreigner, an alien for me to pursue me and to come after me. And in the end, you want to know what Jesus did? He bore the justice of God so we could receive the mercy of God. 
And he credited us with his righteousness and justified us by his resurrection and gave us his spirit and said, now go make disciples and do justice and love mercy. That's where we find the motivation and the power to do this.